This is Recovery Revolution Live. The episode you're about to listen to is live and unedited. If you'd like to join us on the live stream, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube. Facebook.com slash Recovery Revolution 100 or search Recovery Revolution Live on YouTube. All right, we are live. We are back again. Another episode of Recovery Revolution Live. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for letting me be here and sit with you amazing human beings. Great energy you are. Good looking people, too. Good looking people. Welcome to the show. You can ask me if I like this song since it's the same one that we've played every time. And this is the first time I'm actually realizing it's the same one. Yeah, this is the same song we've used for like four months. So what do you think, Ashley? I think I like it just as much as I did the last time I was on. (laughs) Oh, we got Pamela. What's up, Pamela? What's up, Pamela? She's going to be a guest here coming up in a couple weeks. I'm so excited about that. I don't remember the date off the top of my head, but I know it's coming up soon. Woo-hoo. Well, do you want to introduce our, our guest tonight, or do you want to let him introduce himself? Brett, you're running the show. I thought I thought JR was running the show. I thought LC was coming in to run the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ryan, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Well, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, my name is Ryan, Ryan Dusick. Uh, I was the founding drummer of the band Maroon 5. Uh, and, uh, it's been a long and interesting journey for the last, uh, 20 years since the album songs about Jane came out, 20 uh, years. 20 years. Wow. Can you believe that? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was my previous life and career. And, uh, you know, I, I went, I struggled on the road over a few years promoting that album and I had pretty much a, a nervous breakdown, I guess you could say which uh, led to me leaving the band and struggling with my mental health and alcoholism for like a decade. So addiction was a a part of my story. um, And I had pretty bad anxiety disorder as well. Um, And I got sober in 2016. And everything that's happened since has been a blessing. It's been this just whole new path and and, uh, a life of, of meaning and purpose and fulfillment that's just continues to bring new and interesting things into it. I have a book out now called Harder to Breathe, which kind of tracks the the history of my mental health and the whole you know formation of the band and the years I was in the band. Uh, and then the, the ways in which I struggled and the ways in which I've been able to overcome. So it's a hopeful book. It's, it's about recovery. It's about the things that I've learned in this journey. Amazing. Amazing. Isn't it so true that recovery takes just a spark of hope and then it just becomes this this gift that addiction almost doesn't really give us, but it's almost this path that we get to to come into from this thing that we think is going to kill us. I mean, I think it's just amazing. amazing. Yeah, I always say, you know, to people that are just starting out recovery, like, you know, you do the things you, you have to do to to get sober and to stay sober, but the rewards end up being much bigger than just being sober. Yes. You know, the, the work that you have to do to get sober and stay sober leads to so much growth and so much that you take from it that that makes the rest of your life so much more purposeful and, and 
you know, just full of, of, you know, contentment and fulfillment, which a lot of people go through their whole lives and they don't ever like stop to think about those things. They just yes. suffer through the mundane stuff that causes them grief, you know, throughout their yeah. lives. And, and, and if they only got what, you know, some of us have gotten, uh, yes. the rest of their lives would be so much better. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people coming into recovery, they, they think that they're going to get their life like it was before they got addicted and it's, mm. it's so much more. I mean, you're, you're tearing down, you know, all the negativity, all, all the bad things that led you to addiction. You, you're getting rid of that and you're making space for such, you know, amazing things to come into your life. Yeah. Well put think, there. I think it's an important thing to point out what he said though. He said it wasn't just getting sober yeah. that made your life the way it is today it's the work you had to do mm -hmm. like because there's a lot of people that white knuckle it for a lot yes. of years and they don't ever work on themselves and they don't ever get the joys of what life can look like when you dig a little deeper and try to you know we've all got flaws we've all got things we need to work on whether it be mental health struggles whether it be whatever the issue may be we all have things to work on and if you just take away the alcohol or take away the drugs like that might get you through for a little bit, but it's not going to get you what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Great point. <laughs> Great point. <laughs> Nailed it. That's a great point. Hey, can I ask you, Ryan, was addiction a part of your life like before? And I guess, you know, as you get into the story more, you will probably answer this question. But I, I wonder, because in the opening, you were talking about, you know, promoting that album and and having the, the success with the band and building all that. Was addiction ever a part of your life in any way, shape or form, like habit or anything before any of this? Or, or well, how did that come about? <laughs> I wouldn't say that that substances were um, an issue to the point that it was uh, causing problems in my life before that. Uh, but as most of us do in recovery, looking back, I can see that you know the behaviors and the 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 ways in which my mind you know maybe worked in addictive ways long mm. before the substance became a problem. You know, I can recognize the void you know that I was trying to fill when when it, you know when I did end up have, with a problem with alcohol. I think that for me, the form that it took when I was younger was more, um, I was very perfectionistic um, and sort of obsessive compulsive. Mm. And I had anxiety, which I didn't really know that's what it was when I was a kid. I didn't know that the, the word anxiety was what I was experiencing, but I put a lot of pressure on myself. I think if I had an addiction of, of sorts in terms of behavior as a kid, it was just like holding myself up to a really high standard and having to achieve a lot. Mm -hmm. to sort of feel good about myself and um it just put a lot of pressure on myself and and i was a good kid i mean i was the, i was the one who was always responsible and i always wanted to make my parents proud and happy and stuff and and so i you know drugs and alcohol was something i avoided because i was told it was bad um until i was in my 20s when i started drinking um you know in, a, in the college kind of way going out and, and and getting wasted with my friends and that kind of thing and it wasn't to the point where it was, um, you know, like I said, affecting my life in a really negative way until the shift happened, which was that the drinking became something that was self-medication. It was escaping negative feelings or, you know, numbing out um, or even just sort of like taking on a total alter ego of sorts to get out of this 
the the intensity of my anxiety and the and the obsessive thoughts and everything. So so that's when it crossed over into being a problem and became much more habitual and it became um, something that affected every part of my being. Wow, wow. Thank you for going there because that's exactly what, you know, that's exactly what I wanted to know because so many of us, when you've done a lot of that healing work, you are able to, to look back and see some of the ways that maybe that began to exist, you know, before substance ever ever came into play it kind of leads and i think it's a great perspective that you talk about the shift because there's two different shifts either you're a, a, a you know i found myself to be the underachiever and, and that was had a lot of pressure with not being able to be good enough and then there's that opposite that other people relate to as well that overachiever you know and, and it, the, the common denominator is it just holds too much pressure for you know, our hearts and our, our heads to hold. And we're, we're so much more alike than we are different in a lot of ways, just the difference in our stories. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. It's amazing. I had a question for you. I wanted to reach out, you know, you talked about anxiety and you talked about marketing your album. And then mm -hmm. you talked a little bit about like an alter ego. Did, mm -hmm. did you kind of use the substance to cope with that anxiety of, like, you know, I don't know if you're naturally an introvert or an extrovert, but like, for me, I'm naturally an introvert. And like, when I have to go in front of people, like that takes like everything in me, all the, you know, and so, you know, I use pain medicine as my numbing so that I could put myself out there. So, you know, was that like, did it start as a coping mechanism? Yeah. And that's another way in which I can see that it was addictive behavior and addictive thinking before it was even to the point where it was really problematic. Because in my 20s, even when I was still having fun drinking, uh, it was definitely serving a purpose that was that was a coping mechanism because I was a shy kid. I was an anxious kid. Uh, when I would you know, go out into the world to a party or to a bar with friends or whatever, um, I, I, did, I felt very self-conscious. I didn't feel like I was connected to my surroundings, really. And alcohol was definitely, when it worked, you know, early on, it was the thing that got me out of myself. It made me feel more present because it it was, you know, it, it numbed the, the anxiety and the feeling of self-consciousness enough to feel like I could be silly and, and you know, flirtatious and and fun. And so, yeah, and early on, it was definitely that. It was getting out of that, that self-consciousness. And, and, and on the road, promoting the record, there was definitely, you know, I wasn't drinking every night, I think, before I went on stage. I, I don't remember being wasted or hungover in, at that phase of my life um, every day or anything like that. But, but it definitely was, you know, when we had a night off, it was an escape. It was like, I want to, um, you know, blow off some steam. And, and there definitely were nights when it was like uh, just, just to stem the nerves or to try to come down from all the adrenaline and all the pressure that we were under. And, and, and so it was a coping mechanism that was not the healthiest at that point um, because, you know, if I had found, you know, different tools in terms of how to take care of myself, then I probably would have actually alleviated the, the stress better than just adding to it with with a substance like that. But it just kind of ramped up, you know, and it finally got to that point where when I was when I lost that career, when I when the um, the grief of that loss hit me, when I really lost that identity and I went into a depression and and had to kind of go through a grieving process, um, then 
the coping mechanism became the only thing I knew to, to self-soothe. It became the only place I could go to um, to feel better for, for a minute, for a night or whatever. And so that's when it really became a problem. Mm. Mm. Can we talk a little bit? I'm sorry, Ashley, did I interrupt you? Go ahead. No, you, you can go. I had a question that probably was is odd, but you know, that's me. Um, <laughs> you know, everyone dreams, well, not everyone, but there's a lot of people that dream about being famous and making it and doing all this stuff. But like, to me, when I have to do stuff like that, like I would much rather be at home and nobody know who I am. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, and so I'm, you know, wondering, was it, was it really that fun and that exciting to make it like, and that fast? No, that's a good question. You know, I, I have to answer your earlier question. I am an introvert by nature. And so the, the lifestyle of, of being famous was actually not something that really appealed to me. I loved music and I loved making music with my buddies. There was a real intense connection between the four of us and then five of us. So that was the passion for me. It was writing songs and arranging songs and getting ready, you know, to put together a set list and to go into the studio and all that. And the fun that we had as friends, just connecting. And so it was fun in that regard, but it was fun long before there was fame involved for that reason. It was fun because we were just, uh, you know, having fun making music and and just being idiots <laughs> together. You know, um, when you get to the place where there is fame or there is success um, and the de- demands are, are that high and, and the privacy goes down and uh, the expectations go up. Uh, that was not something that was fun for me. Um, I mean, I'd be lying if I said there weren't a lot of perks. There weren't things that went along with it that were wonderful and, uh, you know, highlights in terms of getting to do things you would dream about doing, meeting your heroes or, um, you know, performing in front of people that you really um, admire. Um, and so there was, you know, a lot that goes with that, that that was definitely uh, fun and, and inspiring and, and fulfilling. But over time, the the other stuff that goes along with it, the, the toll that it takes on, at least it did on me, on my constitution, and having to be on all the time. That's the other thing is as an introvert, you know, even whether you're on stage or you're in a meet and greet or you're just going out to dinner with your record label or doing an interview or a photo shoot or whatever, um, you're always expected to be your most dynamic self, you know, to be a representation of this product that you're put, putting out into the world. And so you're schmoozing and you're, and you're having to be uh, everything to everyone. And that just gets exhausting over time for anyone, but certainly for an introvert. So, it, you know, it just, uh, it was something that didn't happen in one day or in one night, but over time, it just, it, it crept up on me that it was something that I, I realized I was suffering. Mm. Ryan, I got a question for you. I've been stalking your uh, Instagram page. Man. <laughs> this, uh, the Kara's Flowers story, dude. You got to uh, tell us about that, man. <laughs> well, uh, Kara's Flowers was the name of the band before we were Maroon 5. We started the band way back in 1994 uh, when I was 16 years old. And uh, we started the band in my parents' garage where my drum set was. And Adam Levine and Jesse Carmichael came over. And the night that we started the band, um, we went out into the world. We went to the Troubadour here in L.A. and went to see some live music, which was a lot of fun. We came back that night and we were laying in bed in my in my 
you know, teenage bedroom, fantasizing about being rock stars and wanting to get started and everything. And uh, Adam was kind of the dreamer. Uh, I mean, kind of just, I guess Jesse was the dreamer. Adam was actually just the ADD kid. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I, I was the the uh, the OCD, you know, very controlled perfectionist. And he just was very impulsive, you know, a lot of ideas. And he had this idea at midnight. He's like, this night is not over. This is, you know, we just started the, the greatest band of all time. We have to cap off this night with something epic. And uh, he had remembered that there was a girl in their class at our high school named Kara, who I, I thought was cute. And he was friends with her and they had gone to elementary school together. So they went way back and he's like, we're going to sneak out after midnight and we're going to go to her house and knock on her window and wake her up because it was her birthday the next morning. And we're going to wish her a happy birthday. And I was a good kid. Like I said, I was the, the responsible one. I was like, no, we're not, we're not doing that. But he's, you know, Adam can be very persuasive <laughs> and pretty charismatic. So he convinced me and uh, we snuck out of my parents' house. We put my, my hand-me-down Jeep Wagoneer in neutral and pushed it down onto the street and started up and rode up into the Hollywood Hills to find Carr's house. Uh, he didn't let us know, of course, that he had no idea where it was exactly. <laughs> Other than that, it was in the Hollywood Hills above the Whiskey A Go Go. So, to make a long story short, we ended up sneaking back in and out of my parents' house two or three times to get a the school roster and then the, a Thomas guide and trying to find where she lived. Somewhere along the line, we found a guy walking down the street at two in the morning at two in the morning selling flowers, and we thought that was a sign. So we bought a bouquet of flowers and by like four or five in the morning as the sun was about to come up we pulled up her street and parked right in front of her house and crept up and knocked on her window and she she looked very um confused (laughs) (laughs) carlos flowers that's where where the name came from (laughs) that's That's a great story yeah that's awesome (laughs) that's how she was that important yeah, I mean, she was, of course, very famous at our high school for a couple of years there after that. And, uh, and we got a record deal right out of high school. So her name was, you know, forever, uh, you know, emboldened. It was on the cover of their first album. We, we had a record deal with with Warner Brothers before we were called Maroon 5. Uh, had an album out in 97 under the name Cars Flowers. Uh, and I was 19 when that came out. And it was, uh, we, of course, thought we were going to be uh, big stars. That's what they told us. Um, and we went out on the road for about six months to promote that record. And I think we sold a total of about 3000 copies of it. <laughs> so it, it didn't exactly take off the way that we had hoped. Uh, and we, when we came home with our, our tail between our legs collectively, but that, that was kind of the beginning of what became Maroon 5 because we had to really like shift gears then and figure out what the hell we were doing with our lives and get serious. <laughs> Did you get the girl? Did I get Did you get the gator? <laughs> I suppose that's it's all relative, right? Yeah, no, I did. I, I went on one date with her. And I made out with her in the front seat of my Ford Explorer, my parents Ford Explorer. And, uh, and uh, Adam was making out with his friend, his friend Kim in the back. <laughs> it, was, it was the, you know, the teenage dazed and confused uh, kind of scenario we, i think i believe rage against the machine was on the tape deck while we were having this makeout session <laughs> oh wow just put dates on it with the tape deck <laughs> right. 
that, that's, that's awesome. before my time. Uh, yep, I know. <laughs> JR's a baby. Yeah. <laughs> that's outstanding. I'm dating myself. I'm dating myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's outstanding. Man, what yeah. a great story. So can you tell us a little bit about like how the how it came about that that all of all of it came came crashing down you know tell us about your your story of how that happened and what you maybe went through through that yeah well like i said touring was something i think i wasn't really cut out for in a lot of ways um and i had an existing injury in my shoulder i was a pitcher in high school um and so i had this injury which we chalked it up to that to a large extent because it started in my shoulder i started having pain in my shoulder and that's where the breakdown started physically. But looking back in retrospect now, I can see how much more of it was about my mental health than just the mm. physical, because, you know, it was something, like I said, that happened over time and it started with joint pain and then it became um, my whole arm. And then it was like my whole body and it became this nerve issue. And it seemed like I had nerve damage and really just the, um, the coordination was all out of whack and my ability to play the drums and I was getting just more and more exhausted and worn down. Uh, I think it was the intersection of the internal pressure that I put on myself, the, the adrenaline and the stress and the anxiety of having to perform day after day in that way. And then going overseas and the jet lag and not being able to rest and sleep. And we had no breaks. I mean, it was just like one tour after another and every day was a grind. And, um, and then it was, you know, it was literally my nervous system, I think, basically telling me, like, you can't do this anymore. You're killing yourself. And it just stopped working. It was like, you can't play the drums anymore. And so even if I wanted to fight through it, it was just kind of breaking down and not letting me play the drums anymore. And and when I, when I stopped playing, um, the band basically said to me, you know, go home and, you know, go to a doctor, as many doctors as you need to go to and figure out what the problem is. And we'll be here when you get back, which was great for them to say and to be supportive of me in that way, because we were brothers and we had started the band and been together for a decade. Um, but it was not one thing. I mean, I went to an orthopedist and he told me I had inflammation in the shoulder, tendonitis, and he gave me a cortisone shot. I went to a neurologist and he said I had slowing of the nerves in my right arm and called it uh, thoracic outlet syndrome and gave me some medication, nerve pain medication. And I went to, you know, all these different doctors and they all gave me like very minute definitions of what was going on. But what I felt inside, and this is something a lot of, I think addicts can relate to, is what is there was something defective about me. There was something within me that was broken and that it was, all of these doctors weren't seeing the whole picture. There was something wrong with me that was more to my core. And so, it, that made it really hard for me to overcome what I was dealing with because my body was just rejecting, you know, the, any, any willpower I had to try to overcome it. And, and I was losing my self-esteem more and more, my confidence was going down. And so it actually became harder to, to, I was getting even worse, you know, as, as I was trying to rest and recover. And then I was on all these medications now, and then I started drinking more. And so you do the math, you take a problem and then you try to, self-medicate on top of being overly medicated. And it just took that problem and made it 10 times worse until finally the band had, it was time for, to make another album and they needed to move on. 
And, uh, you know, it was something I saw coming. It wasn't a surprise, but it was still devastating when it happened. You know, it was time to really face reality that everything I'd worked for for 12 years, uh, all, you know, my best friends and this band and all the, the friends around the band and and the career that we had built and the success and the everything that was meaningful and purposeful in my life was going to be gone. And so how was I going to fill that void, mm -hmm. you know, other than to crawl into a bottle? Wow. Wow. Oh. That's tough. And the body keeps the score. The body does keep the score. Absolutely. There's a certain amount of exhaustion that no amount of rest can like it's that like to your bone exhaustion that you can sleep for 10 weeks straight and you're still not going to be rejuvenated. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. That's definitely what it felt like. And it's it's amazing though. Once I got into recovery, you know, it's just how the the, the it flips, you know, yeah. and just things lift you up, and things you know feel. It was the first time after all that, you know, the the first time in in a long time that I felt truly inspired, you know, in early recovery. Um, yeah. I went into into um, I went into rehab twice, and the first time it was. Um, you know, I was, the th I was dipping my toes in the water and uh, didn't really jump in. Uh, the next time I was kind of shoved in by life, you know, <laughs> I was very, very much humbled by my addiction. Uh, but it, but early on, even as, as terrifying as it is to take those first steps into real recovery, I, it was pretty early on that I, I the spirit was awoken, you know. And for Amazing. me, it was just being of service that was the thing that kind of, for the first time since I'd had that passion of music and the connection, the spiritual connection of being with the guys and creating music, uh, it was being there for my fellows, you know, in, in rehab and in, in supporting one another and feeling like I have I had something to offer uh, my mates. That that was the thing that turned, you know, the corner for me, feeling that. It woke me up and it gave me a sense of purpose, which is why I volunteered at a recovery center for a couple of years and why I eventually went back to school to become a therapist. Amazing. From pain to purpose, from pain to purpose. It's a real, mm -hmm. it's a real road. Mm -hmm. Well, and we've noticed that a lot, like in, I mean, there's been a lot of stars in recovery musicians in, you know, the past, but really in, since COVID, it's like when they stopped touring and, you know, actually like had to be alone with themselves. It seems like a lot of people realize that they needed to address their mental health and substance use, whether it, you know, they just wanted to, you know, test out the waters of sobriety, whether they wanted to take time off for mental health, but you hear about it more and more. And it's, it's good that, you know, someone like you, you know, led the pathway that because it's, they don't always have peers that understand. So having mm -hmm. someone that's been there is, I'm sure, really impactful. Yeah, it's an interesting moment. You know, there's so much, obviously, negative stuff and, and pain that has come from the, the whole experience of the pandemic and, and everything that's been going on around it. Um, but in some ways, there are lessons to be learned from having to take a step back and really look at yourself and look at how you're living your life. And and I do see a shift. You know, the, the, the dialogue about mental health has been much more prominent in recent years, and that's played into it. You know, I think that you see artists and, and celebrities talking about it more. 
uh, in a way that they're being more transparent and vulnerable. And that's really helpful. You know, I, ever since I mean, I've had this book out just for a few months and just stepping into that into that world and promoting it, I'm seeing so many more people that are doing similar things and sharing their stories. And and I'm going to South by Southwest uh, to promote uh, by nice. appearing on a panel with a lady who wrote a book about mental health and touring and did wow. a bunch of research on the topic and like got people to, to contribute to it. And so here I am just telling my story with my book and there's people out there now talking about it as a, a whole category of mental health, you know, the touring industry. And you hear young artists that are in the position that I was in 20 years ago and canceling tours, you know, because they're, they're thinking about prioritizing their physical and their mental health. That would have been unheard of, you know. I mean, people canceled tours back then and they would give some some obscure reason why, you know, due to exhaustion, you know, mm-hmm. and like you couldn't say I, I'm dealing with mental health issues because that would be like putting a, a scarlet letter on yourself. It'd be like, mm-hmm. you know, there'd be a lot of judgment about that. But now hopefully we're, we're destigmatizing the conversation so that people can talk about it. And that's what allows people to not feel alone, as you said. Yes, yes, yes. And we're doing it. We're doing it just since, you know, uh, JNR and I, and I share this, what it's been like almost five years. We've been doing this online recovery thing. It's hard to say that it's just been five years because it has come such a long way from, you know, so many people stepping out and telling their stories and people of all walks of life and and sharing vulnerably about who they are and and where they've been and and the ways that they're moving past that and, and shifting in from that pain to purpose. And, you know, I, I am just every day get overwhelmed with gratitude and, and just in awe over how far we've come, you know, just because a few people got tired of white knuckling and wanted to share service and recovery, I think is one of the, if somebody's, in that place of, you know, feeling pressure to find their purpose or wonder what their purpose is, just start doing service that you feel led to do, whatever that equals, and you'll, you'll discover it. That's my belief of that. It's amazing. Yeah, that's exactly what it was for me. You know, it's just, just following that, that service and, uh, and also just listening to what your soul wants, you know, your spirit, what your spirit will tell you what you need if you follow it. You know, it's like, it just felt so good. You know, so much of addiction is, is internal. It's isolating. It's your world is just getting smaller and smaller. And there's so much self-obsession and the feeling that everything you're going through is so big, just keeps growing and growing. Well, the more you, you sort of insulate yourself in your addiction. And so just getting out into the world, feeling connection. I mean, that's the second, there's a chapter in my book called connection and purpose. Cause those were the two biggest elements for me, mm-hmm. you know, that drove me. And it was just each day, what is the thing that makes me feel connected to life more, you know, mm-hmm. connected to something that feels purposeful. And when you follow that, your spirit wants that. And when you follow yes. that, it puts you where you need to be. Mm-hmm. And the next indicated action is exactly what's going to fulfill you in that way. And if you keep following that, you don't need to know where it's leading you. You don't have to have a five-year plan. People told me right. in five years, you'll be doing things you couldn't have possibly imagined. And and they were right, both in that I am doing things that I couldn't imagine, but also that I didn't need to imagine. I just needed right. to follow that that impulse and, 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 and just be of service 
and put myself in the in the, the place where my spirit wanted to be and it took me where i wanted to go absolutely it is and thank god we changed that that and, and and i think that you know changing that paradigm from being afraid of the unknown to becoming excited about the unknown because when you are following the path that your spirit is pulling you towards and leading you to it does become an exciting venture versus a you know a, a scary change it almost you don't almost really see it coming you're just all all of a sudden you're just there you're just in it and it's it's a gift what a gift great way it's to a weird that. thing when that happens it's it's you you're you're absolutely right it's like you can't anticipate it and it's scary it's scary to step into that but then you do it and you do it and one day you wake up and it's exciting. It's yeah. shifted from from absolute terror <laughs> to yeah. something that's exciting and, and, and inspiring. So true. That deserved a bell ring right there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I think it's so cool to see people that we have on this pedestal and have them be vulnerable and, and share that they go through the same kind of experiences that we do. Because I don't know if it's mm -hmm. just me, but I... I think in my mind, I have this idea that, you know, with the fame and with success, like you don't have to deal with the same problems. I know it, on some level, we don't deal with the same problems in like more of a monetary kind of thing, but I can relate with the feelings that you're having, you know, the, the anxiety and, and the stress and like all those kind of feelings that it's a universal thing. And I don't think that we always connect those with mm. people that we see as famous or that are like, you know, that upper echelon or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. I love you, man. You always come with the, <laughs> you always come with the greatest stuff, man. You're always vulnerable. I love you. Male vulner oh. vulnerability is is something that is also something that needs to be modeled more in in the in the media that we consume. It's a relatively new idea for a, a man to be able to be vulnerable and for it to be embraced. So I applaud you for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Brett's a man of few words, but when he has words, they're good. Aren't they? Aren't they? Yeah. So ah. I was about hope being the foundation of recovery, according to SAMHSA, and then the principles, you know, purpose. He 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 blew me out of the water. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good guy. A good guy. Man. Does anybody in the audience have any questions for Ryan? Or we mm. could uh, we could open up the phone line. We haven't done that in a few weeks. Yeah, let's do it. Oh, yeah. Give me one second to get everything. Let's go set live. Up. Give me one second to get everything set up because uh, I wasn't prepared. So I, I probably shouldn't call in, huh? <laughs> you can just ask your question. Yeah, you're, you you're already you're already here. Ryan, what did your uh, what did your early recovery look like? Twelve uh, step guy or I, I did. I did a little bit of everything. I, I, I took. I like to describe it as a, a holistic approach to recovery, mm. which, you know, I mean, I, it's like the twelve steps were, were great um, for me. I needed. I'm like, I'm an overachiever, even in recovery. Right? <laughs> it's like I had. I had to do it all. I was in therapy. I was volunteering. I was. Um, you know, it was. It was a twenty four seven job for me for a while there. Recovery in the first couple of years. Uh, I think I got, you know, I got addicted to the feeling of being of service, certainly. And that's a good addiction. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it was a little bit of everything. I did a couple of different methods. The, the, the recovery center that I volunteered at was a, 
was not a 12-step based place. It was a cognitive behavioral therapy based place. Uh, and they also talked a lot about the, the sort of brain uh, neurochemistry of addiction. And so that was really helpful to get a, a slightly different angle than the 12 steps as the spiritual approach. Um, they complemented each other. It wasn't that they were like opposing ideas. They were, and they, they encouraged the 12 steps as well. So, um, so yeah, I, I just liked anything and, and everything that I thought was applicable to my journey. I, I wanted to, uh, to understand it and, and see how it applied to me. It was really just a total paradigm shift in terms of the way that I was living my life. You know, we talk about mind, body, and spirit. It was like, I wanted my lifestyle and the way that I was treating myself physically to match the things that I was trying to do uh, spiritually and working on my mental health, you know, in terms of how that factors into all of it. Amazing. Well, looks like we got a few questions in the comments. The first one is asking how old you are, Ryan. <laughs> Good question. I'm 45. All right. Next, we got Bridge uh, asking if you lost any friends since you entered into recovery. Um, no, because I think my drinking at the end, you know, was was mostly just me passing out on my couch. It wasn't very social, so there weren't a lot of friends to lose at that point. Um, but I will say, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there were a lot of old friends that I had lost touch with in my drinking years. You know, people that I, I had a lot of regrets of ways in which. You know, my drinking had isolated me and I'd withdrawn from my life that I, I was in early recovery thinking I wanted to reach out to a lot of these people and just had this image in my mind, which was kind of distorted that all of these old friends were still living the life we lived 20 years ago when we were all mm -hmm. crazy kids in our 20s. Right. Um, and and then I realized when I got sober and I kind of came back to reality that like everyone has grown up and moved on. You know, everyone, most of my friends have their own lives now, their own careers, their own families and kids and that, all that stuff. So there was a moment at which I had to kind of come to a place of acceptance. It's like, okay, there are people that, that uh, I, I want to reconnect with and there are some I have to let go. Um, and there are people that, you know, I'll be happy if I get to see them, you know, once in a blue moon and reaching out to them is, is worthy. It, it's worth it to me to just to, to see them and have them in my life in any way that I can. Um, and so you know, it was in some ways it was great in terms of reconnecting with friends. In some ways, it was having to move on in some ways. Yeah. And you kind of answered her part too as well. She has to be able to let go of anybody. Do you believe though that they were really friends if they don't want to be your friend now that you're in recovery when you're working on yourself? Well, it's, I haven't encountered anyone that doesn't want to be my friend or like like just you know shooed me away. It's more just like realizing like. Sometimes in your addiction, you think you have these connections to people that sometimes aren't even real connections. Mm -hmm. It might have been based on drinking. It might have been based on a time in your life, you know, that, that at that time in your life, you guys were connected for something that was tangible at that time. But you fast forward a decade or two and it's not really applicable anymore. Uh, it's hard to have a real clear vision of the way that things are when you're in the haze of your addiction. Right. Yeah. And then sometimes I think in, in recovery, once you, your brain kind of snaps back into, uh, a, you know, a, a more, uh, I don't know, a healthier way of functioning. Um, you start to see things a little bit more clearly the way that they are and come to a place of acceptance. And then also, you know, I've made a ton of new friends in, in recovery, both people that are in recovery and just people that are like-minded in terms of positivity and, and of certainly mental health, you know, working in that field. A lot of my new friends are people that work in that field. And I'm sure that if we met at a different time in our lives, we might not have had as much in common then, 
or we might might have bonded over some really crappy stuff, you know, <laughs> that's <laughs> like if we both had mental health or addiction issues in the past, our relationship might have had a very different meaning than than it does now. So I think I think really what I'm learning is that, you know, life has seasons and and where I'm at, at is exactly where I need, need to be at this point in my life. And the people that I feel connected to are I, it's for the right reasons, you know, and and you never know what life is going to bring you. And when I'm 65, uh, I might have a different perspective than I do now, but I hopefully it'll be continue, you know, continuing to grow <laughs> and not going backwards. Well, and I have a feeling as your book gets out there and as your story goes out there, there might be people from the past that need your support and reach out that you might never expect will reach out. And maybe they already have, or, you know, who knows what the future holds, but yeah, I've had that experience a couple of times. Yeah, of people. And it's interesting, you know, to, to have sometimes the, I, I, the nature of a relationship can shift completely based upon where you are in your life. And um, certainly being a mental health professional now, it's interesting, even with my parents, like a lot of times they call me for advice now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, uh, it's interesting. I, mean, I don't want to be my parents therapist, but at the same time, it's nice to to. Uh, to feel that I, they have that much trust in me or that I've grown that much in my own, they can see my own journey has brought me to such a place of, of perspective that they want to hear my feedback on things that they're dealing with. That's mm. awesome. Mm. That's we got awesome. A few, we got a few more questions. So Danny said, what piece of advice would you give to a musician that thinks they create music better under the influence of a substance? That's a great question. Mm-hmm. Great question. And it's a tough one. It's an age old one for, for musicians and any kind of artist. I've run into so many people in, in different areas of creativity, writers, you know, a lot, that's a lot of writers think you need to be an alcoholic to be a great writer, you know, and um, it's tough. I mean, it, I think that the, obviously the reality is that it, that's an illusion, right? Yeah. And the more yeah. you, you, you chase that, uh, the more, the harder you're making it on yourself. Uh, when I was at the worst of my drinking, you know, I, I thought to do anything creative, even to just appreciate music, just to like music, I had to get a certain buzz on. Mm -hmm. And that that window in which I liked music and felt creative got smaller and smaller and smaller yeah. over time. So that like, it's like, oh, maybe if I'm three drinks in, then I can, you know, kind of vibe out and think about writing something. And then it's like, but four or five drinks in, now it's gone. And now yeah. I just want to like, and so... You know, it, it is an illusion. It is, look, with like anything else, it requires more work to get to where you can get to easily when you get wasted, you know, uh, to, to access those feelings, to access the creativity that might come out at a certain point when you're stimulated in that way. And just with your, the same thing with like, for instance, drinking for me, which was, you know, the first thing it was helpful for was social reasons, right? The social anxiety. I realized in sobriety that, that part of me that came out when I was drunk is has been in there the whole time. And I'm able to access it now sober because I know it's there and I know that part of me. And so it takes a little bit more work. You have to dig a little bit deeper and find that confidence and find uh, that part of my personality that is more outgoing. Um, but the same thing I think applies for creativity and making music. It's like that's if it's in you when you're drunk or, or stoned or whatever, it's in you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Maybe access, maybe you need to find a different way to access it. Maybe it requires a little bit more work to get yourself inspired, to get yourself in the zone and feel that flow where it comes out of you. 
but it's accessible and it's just, it, you're actually doing your, yourself a disservice by trying to access it by using a substance because all you're doing is training yourself that that's the only way to access it. Yes. And you're, you're making it harder and harder for yourself to do so. Yeah. Yeah. On the flip side of that, as a mental health advocate, I'm going to ask you on the other side. There's some musicians that don't take their mental health medication to make music during times. What's your advice about that? That's a that's a that's a great question too, and I, I have a feeling I know who you're talking about. We won't name names, but <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, when I look at people that uh, that are struggling with some of the disorders where you need medication, because not everyone needs medication, but there are some disorders that really the only the number one. Uh, treatment is a medication. And I look at those things like bipolar or schizophrenia, uh, where the people who are taking the medication, it's oftentimes the biggest problem is that they want to go off the medication and they keep going off the medication. And I almost look at it as like a flip from substance abuse, from addiction. And when somebody is on, um, let's say, a, a mood stabilizer, I think that the feeling, much like an addict that's trying to quit, is they're having to get used to being in the middle again mm. or for the first time. And they're used to high highs and low lows and the middle feels either just boring or uh, depressing. Uh, and it feels like all the things that stimulated creativity um, or inspiration of any kind are gone. And so therefore what's the point of living, mm. right? And it's, it's a similar thing. I think that people that keep relapsing and people that keep going off of their meds that they need it's the same impulse, just in an, in an opposite direction. And so it's really the same premise. You know, it's, it's buying into the idea that, yes, it's a, it's a big shift in your thinking in terms of the middle is a good place to be. Finding balance, finding the center is actually going to lead to more productivity. It's actually going to lead to more contentment in your life and the ability to, to find uh, more consistency of happiness in your life. Uh, but that's, that's a tough thing to buy into when you're used to the high highs and the low lows. Yeah. And uh, it, it takes that shift and that commitment to that. And then it does come in time once you have mm. made that commitment. Mm. Beautiful. I agree. Thank you. Yeah. There's a few more questions in the comments. Uh, Jennifer asked, what were your biggest amends? Good question, and it's probably maybe a little too personal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best to speak in general terms, I guess. Because, you know, the first I made a list, you know, an eight step. Uh, and it was funny because my sponsor, he like crossed like half of it off because it was all just self-obsessive stuff. He was like, do you really need to make amends for this? Or is this just something you want to do to make yourself feel better? Mm -hmm. You know, and it was like, are you really like serving that person? Are you really, you know... Um, making an amends for something you did, taking uh, responsibility for something that, that harmed someone. Um, and it's like, he's calling up an old girlfriend or somebody you dated for two weeks and, you know, explaining what happened. Like, is that really going to make things better in either of your lives? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I did have to think about that a lot. You know, it's like, what is, what is the purpose of an amends really? And to me, it was really the important people in my life. Cause I wasn't somebody that, I know I can only speak for myself. I wasn't somebody that was going around really 
screwing people over all the time. And my addiction was largely, um, I was hurting myself as much or more than anyone else. So it was the people that were close to me that I really needed to deal with the most. It was the, it was the really close relationships, the family and the, and the romantic partner and those types of things that, um, you know, it was just, it was living amends. It was more um, showing them the consistency and the change in me as much mm. as an apology, you know, <laughs> showing them that I've, I've grown and I've matured. That's the greatest apology in my, right. in my experience. That's the greatest apology. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Mm. And then uh, bridge says who inspires you presently? Great question as well. Um, I find that my colleagues inspire me a lot. Um, you know, I work at a, at a, not at a recovery center, at a, a, a clinic uh, that called the Missing Piece for Anxiety, uh, the Missing Piece Center for Anxiety, which I didn't think I was going to, I thought I was going to go and work at a recovery center um, when I went in to become a, a therapist. Um, and, and then, you know, I went to school and my, my horizons were broadened and I had all kinds of different ideas that I've explored about what I would be doing with that degree. Um, and I found so much inspiration in my professors and in my uh, classmates and every step of the way that I had to really think about what I wanted to do. Um, and private practice was something that I thought, and I am doing and I want to do, but I realized that that can be isolating. You know, you're really only talking to your clients all the time. Um, and having colleagues, people that are like-minded, that are on the same path. It's, it, I mean, I think I really lucked out because I don't think every clinic is like the one that, that I'm at, the missing piece, um, because there's just really intelligent, really compassionate people, some of whom are in recovery themselves from addiction, some of whom are just people who have had their own struggles with mental health, um, and some of them not so much. They're just people that have gone into this profession, but um, but to be like to be in a place where people are helping people every day and you talk about that service element and i look around me and even if i'm having you know not the best day or i'm like feeling a little down about how i'm i'm feeling or what i'm doing in my work life uh, i look around me and i find inspiration because there's always a conversation going on about uh mental health and about positivity and about finding ways to to look forward and grow so it's really it's nobody up on a pedestal you know it's not it's not the, the the heroes, the celebrities that it used to be. It's really the people around me that are doing the work. That's awesome. That's awesome. Great question. Yeah, there was one more, and I think there's there might be a typo in here, and then there's a second part that follows up. But it, the way I'm understanding this is they're asking um, any advice on how to be more humble and giving and how to, it looks like, get back to their faith. Hmm. Uh, yeah, well, you know, humility is a big step, I think. Uh, when I read, you know, the first three steps, uh, to me, they're all about finding humility, being humbled enough to accept um, your frailties. And I think it, I think it's, it's one of those things, it's kind of fake it till you make it, um, and just putting one foot in front of the other. If you show up, in a giving way. It doesn't have to be, I, I thought, you know, going into recovery and you hear about the, the service element and I thought it had to be this profound shift to, okay, my entire life is about, um, I'm working at a, at a soup kitchen and everything I do is about um, charity. And, and that's a hard thing to motivate. You know, if that's, if those are the, the stakes, it's like, I'm going from living in this entirely self-obsessive world of addiction 
to being a hundred percent giving. Um, you don't need to be in that place. You don't need to be all the way there and, and to, to have, you know, put your needs aside completely. Quite the contrary, your needs are very important. And for a lot of us, we have to figure that out. Yeah. You know, put the oxygen mask on ourselves before we, we can help somebody else. But I do think that just doing small things, just showing up in a way that allows you to be present for another human being, mm. um, that's it feeds on itself. It grows, you know, if even if it's just get, going to a meeting and saying volunteering to set up chairs, you know, or just saying, I'll give you a ride or whatever it is, like every little step you take that is that is getting out of self in order to be present for another human being. Um, it does two things. It's an exercise in humility and getting out of self, out of self-obsession. And it's also uh, how do you build self-esteem? You do esteemable acts. Right. Mm, yeah. So you actually start feeling <laughs> you start feeling better about yourself. So at the end of the day, we're really just doing it for ourselves. But is that is there anything wrong with that? I mean, right. if we're if we're being giving and it makes us feel good and being good makes us give more like it, it just goodness feeds on goodness in the same way that negativity and toxicity breeds more toxicity. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just shifting that that dynamic in the opposite direction. Absolutely. Wonderful. That's amazing. I can speak for myself. The one thing you have to be cautious of is almost giving back too much or avoiding mm -hmm. your own issues because here's your new drug. Like, yeah. I, I hate to say it like that, but service can be used as a way to avoid your own problems or, you know, staying, you know, I have teenage kids and it's not always fun. So, you know, sometimes service is my way of feeling like, okay, well, I'm doing something good for someone. I'm not out away, but I'm not home dealing with my issues that I need to deal with. So I think that, you know, as we look at ourselves and we work on ourselves and, you know, we just have to assess, are we using it to avoid? Are we, you know, are we, everything's in the middle. Yeah. That's a great point and really important because I, you know, I hadn't thought of that. Um, for me, I, I think I was guilty of, of focusing too much on myself. Um, and, and so my, my, you know, advice to a lot of people in early recovery that were coming up behind me was the service element. You know, it's like the best way to get out of self. And then I realized that like the other half of us have been giving too much of ourselves our whole lives. You know, there's yeah. codependency, there's uh, the caretaker mentality. There's um, if I, it, I can, I can feel validated. I can feel whole if I'm, if I'm helping somebody else all the time to the point where you're neglecting yourself and you're actually making other people dependent on you. Yeah. And so they end up, uh, end up suffering as well. So you're not really helping anyone. So it is, it's that at the end of the day, that the conclusion I came to is that everything is balanced, right? Yeah. Balance is the answer mm -hmm. to everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that being for somebody who can be on the narcissistic end of things, anything to get out of self is helpful. But if you're on that end where you are somebody who doesn't put your, never puts yourself first and is, and is, uh, you know, codependent or whatever else, uh, finding that middle, but not to the point where you become narcissistic, but just to the point where there's a balance, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think it goes back to that question of, you know, why, why am I doing this? Like, what what is the the big goal here? And I mm -hmm. think that Ashley made an amazing point with the avoidance because a lot of us, when we're in new recovery, we're we're still we're still working through all of those emotional 
places that live with us, those those places of trauma, and, and they will be drawn to someone else in trauma, to the place where we can get ourselves in huge trouble when we're trying to step out too far and do too much that, you know, we don't, like somebody just used the word boundaries, like we don't realize what boundaries are yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that small acts of service, things that sometimes are for other people, but not necessarily one-on-one -on -one and personal. Like you made mention of setting up chairs for a meeting. That's a great mm -hmm. place to start in yeah. your recovery because there's no other person to get, you know, codependent and wrapped up in and, and create some trauma bond. And within two weeks, you guys are back at doing, you know, in a negative space. So I think those are, those are great points that, that you both brought up, you know, this, the pendulum seems to swing both ways, you know, really far before it ever comes back to balance. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, you know, that's addiction in and of itself is it just swings so far. And, you know, so those are great points. Great points. Thanks, Ashley. Well, the thing I've seen a lot recently and it, you know, it bothers me so much. I wish I, you know, I can't make anyone realize, but especially, you know, peers have the greatest, a lot of them have the greatest intentions, but they continue to go out into the field and, and bad situations and they don't ever kind of address what they're seeing or, you know, I mean, the trauma that they're, they're dealing with all the time and they're giving and they're great people, but then we're losing them. Like, I mean, there's people in long-term recovery we're losing because they're not dealing with that trauma of helping. Mm -hmm. and, and that, that's something that really bothers me. You know, I'm like, we want you to stay, take care of yourself. Like put the oxygen mask on. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a great thing to be in a peer support course. Like that should really be a big part of the peer support course at this point. And who better to, who better to spearhead that than the Ashley Grimes? The Ashley Grimes. The Ashley Grimes. I'll give that a ding. Good. Uh, looks like we got a couple more questions. And I know that we're getting kind of towards the end of the time because we're trying to stay around an hour or so. Uh, Nikki said, <laughs> so. Uh, what boundaries do you have with friends and or family drinking around you? Do you avoid being around them? Good question. Uh, well, I had much more uh, firm boundaries in early recovery. I, you know, it was an interesting conversation with my girlfriend uh, when I was still in rehab. Um, we had to have a tough conversation that I hadn't really anticipated. Uh, but, you know, we, we went out to dinner one night. And she said to me, um, so, you know, does the fact that you're quitting drinking mean I basically am quitting drinking too? <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, I, I can't tell you what to do. You know, it's your life. And um, I can just, and I just had to think really on the spot, what's going to be okay with me in terms of my journey and what's not going to be okay. I can't tell you what to do. I can just tell you what's, what is going to be, what I can deal with and what I can't. <clears throat> and so, for me, it was um, can't have alcohol in the house, you know, um, and you can drink if you want to. I can't tell you not to. But if you're drinking to a point that is excessive or alcoholic, I'm not going to be able to live with that. You know, that's just not going to work for me. And so we agreed. We agreed early on that um, there would be no alcohol at all for six months. That was what she was comfortable committing to. Um, 
And then after that, we would reassess about, you know, or she would reassess whether she wanted to drink at all after that. Um, and if so, though, not in the house, not in front of me, you know. Uh, and it, it, so she was able to live up to that. So clearly it was not a problem for her. But um, at a certain point, you know, we go out into the world, we go to parties, we go to do things with other people. She'll have a glass of wine. Um, it doesn't bother me. Honestly, when I look at alcohol now, I mean, I've pretty much completely um, shifted my relationship. I look at alcohol and it's just poison to me. You know, <laughs> I, I look at it and I see someone drinking a martini and I'm just like, why would you pour that? you know, toxic fuel into your, into your mouth. Uh, so it's not like it's triggering or tempting to me at all. I just kind of laugh. Uh, but if she was, you know, if people around me were getting wasted and doing stupid stuff that reminded me of my past and that just wouldn't be consistent with my lifestyle now, it wouldn't be, okay, I wouldn't have those people in my life. Um, so I don't tell people what to do. I just know that like the people that are in my life are the people that are there for a reason. You know, and the people that aren't, aren't there for a reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your vibe attracts your tribe, man. Your vibe attracts your tribe. Mm -hmm. And there's one last question we have here in the comments. And I think this is going back to possibly the being of service uh, piece that we were talking about earlier, but they're asking what your motives are. Well, you know, <clears throat> early on in recovery, my motive was really just, um, you know, just not feeling like shit anymore, <laughs> you know, yeah. just wanting to rejoin life and feel, uh, I just knew that the way that I was living was making me feel worse and worse. And it was going to keep getting worse until I died. Right. Um, so the, it was just as simple as that is like, there's gotta be a, a better way to live a way. If I don't want to die, if I want to live that I better start getting busy, figuring out what that's going to be. Cause it's not this, um, but it evolved over time. You know, the motivation, evolved as new things entered my life and it did become service at a certain point it was i feel like i have certain tools that i've gained and certain um assets and things that i that i value in myself it became part of my new self-definition my own my new sense of confidence in myself because i had uh talents i didn't know that i had or things that i rediscovered in my personality that i had forgotten about in my addiction and i I felt a sense of responsibility to give of what I had learned and what I had gained. So that was a part of it. And then, I mean, I think it's, it's both, it's both things at once. It is that selflessness that is, I feel a responsibility to give of having gained those things, but it's also, it makes me feel good about myself. You know, there is the ego element too. It's like, it's been, it had been a long time since I, there was something that I felt like I was really good at and I've gained what I'm good at through my struggles. So it feels extra meaningful to use that for something that I'm like, when I'm sitting with someone in a room and helping them with their mental health or helping them, you know, quit drinking, like, I feel really like I've, I have something powerful to offer and that fills me up. And uh, it, it can be, a, it can be a little selfish in that it's like, that's, 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 you know, my purpose now, that's, that's who I am. That's my identity. And I think that's okay. I think that you can get that out of it and also be altruistic in your, in your motive. Yeah. So true. So true. Well put. Well put. And I think it's great now that, you know, there's still the stigma in the clinical world, um, you know, being open about recovery and 
you know, from substances and mental health, like as a clinician, but I think it's becoming more, you know, people are able to be more open about it. I mean, because now you're able to help from a clinical aspect, but you're also able to, to do the peer aspect. So you're able to take it from both approaches in one place. And I mean, even the position that I'm in, you know, five years ago, someone in long-term recovery wouldn't it would right. be a clinician that was in my position. Right. So it, it's really, you know, people like you telling your stories, opening the doors for others to be able to find a purpose and to. Yeah. And honestly, that's why I wrote the book that I did when I did. Um, and, you know, and why I feel good promoting it and talking about it and telling my story. You know, I wrote this book while I was in grad school getting my master's in clinical psychology. And my first impulse was to write it, you know, from that perspective as a mental health professional. And then I realized, like, people are going to relate to just a human story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for me to just come out and tell my story the way I would if I were in an AA meeting, you know, just being really honest and vulnerable, it can be a model for people in terms of vulnerability. It can be a model for, for, you know, just what I went through and seeing yourself in my struggles. You don't have to have been in a band. You don't have to have been a musician. You don't have to have had success or failure or any of those things that I went through. Uh, you just have to have experienced the same emotions, the same mm -hmm. experience of being a human being. And if you can relate to my story in those regards, then there's a good chance that you're going to see yourself in my recovery. Yeah. So telling my story in that way is going to offer some people hope. And also it's going to inspire other people to do the same thing. Like you're describing, you know, being a part of that narrative, telling it in a way that, that people that are on that journey and a little bit, you know, just coming up, they're going to feel the inclination to do the same thing because they realize that it's, it gives you that sense of uh, fulfillment and doing so and how important it is for people to do that. Yeah. yeah. So good. So good. And thank Let's you. Let's be real. Everybody is recovering from something. Amen. Now, and, and people don't know how to recover. So people Amen. that have that experience are the guides to what the future is going to look like. And if you model that behavior of, hey, I've struggled, but I've gotten back up, like that's going to teach people, you know, it's going to help people that are down right now to realize, hey, like, did it or he did it or who did it i can do it too and then more people are able to recover so it's powerful that's right right i didn't even know what recovery was five and a half years ago <laughs> <laughs> so true so true i've tried to do the sober thing so many times but i've only done recovery once mm -hmm. you know, mm. that's all realizing it was different realizing it was different you you got some great catchphrases there, man. You got a patent. You're gonna copyright some of these. <laughs> I try to not use the sober term. Like when I first got into recovery, you know, the the pathway that I went into was very much abstinence only. And you know, I'm grateful today that I went that pathway. You know, but it a lot of people don't make it that pathway, and that's not what yeah. works for them. And being able to, you know, recovery isn't about abstinence some people need medication like yeah. there's something wrong but it's a process of change where you are able to improve your life and absolutely if, if it's not working going completely sober if 12 steps are not working there's 
a million different ways that work for others. And, it, and you, if you think 12 steps is it, I promise there's other ways and people are recovering from them all the time. It's an and program, you know, it's a this and this and this and program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that you have to do everything that it takes and to be on this ever evolving journey that is recovery, you know, is, is it's just this, it's, it's still the amazing gift that addiction has given. And I think that you said something earlier, Ryan, just, just using the word relationship. And I think it's when we change our relationship to those medications, because, you know, Ashley and I really, we're strongly for, you know, all types of recovery. We all are. And medication assisted treatment is something that, you know, we both share a fight for in common. And it's about helping people change a relationship to a medication that is going to be helpful and not just the the switch not to fall into the same lie or the same trap of the switch and to 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 gain control over your health care and that part of addiction is your health care as well i mean you are a whole spirit body soul in one and it is up to you to to navigate what's best for for your vehicle and your soul i mean there's so much to it so much to it. Mm. God, I love you guys, man. I love spending time <laughs> in this energy. It's so good. So good. Oh. I left my pathway like after a year and a half because they told someone that was on medicated assistance therapy that they weren't in recovery. Yeah. And that was that was one thing. Like I'm really protective of other people and you know they but like they weren't in recovery and went back to the streets. Like, and to me, that's not okay. So even though my pathway was different, I fully support, you know, just from that experience in early recovery. Like, so that's why I'm a big advocate. Yeah. Absolutely. There's more than one road. There's many roads that lead to the same, uh, you know, destination. And, you know, I think we should be meeting people where they're at, you know, and providing any opportunity in any way, you know, if somebody has the, has the desire, there's a way you just have to find yeah. what's going to work for that person. You know, we're all, we're all slightly different in our journey. So that's it. That's it. That's why we're so important. All of us are so important to each other, you know? Mm. Yeah. So true, Pam. Well, and the substances are, evolving like yes it's, it's not the same i mean i know that mm -mm. people have been recovering forever but, but what's opiates do to the brain you know for years different than alcohol or amphetamines and what amphetamines do to the brain is different than so true opiate use disorder so i think that and i mean and there's a lot more that's starting to come out about you see a lot more people that had eating disorders before they Yes. Went to substances and, you know, yeah. anxiety. So, I mean, I think, you know, we just have to be open-minded and realize that it's not just always the substance, the substance. Yeah. The coping, you know, sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There have been times in my journey that, that I think that's, that substance saved me. 
in all honesty, because that was the only coping skill I had. And maybe had that not been there at the time, maybe I wouldn't be here now. So there are some things and some parts that I have to to actually be able to thank it for because I had nothing else. That was the only coping mechanism. Mm. And and so, you know, it's changing the relationship to your entire experience and your journey and all of it ever evolving. I've heard that before that people have said that substances are the one thing that kept them from suicide because if they had to feel the full pain at that time, they wouldn't have been able to handle it. So when they were able to get to a place to cope with whatever that pain was, but. Well, that's an important thing to remember. There's a reason why we started, right? Yeah, it served exactly. a function when we started it. It was, there was, it was, it was our medication at that point, yeah. you know, and it, the other thing to remember though, is that that re relationship changed. It shifted at some point. It wasn't serving us anymore. You know, yeah. and both yeah. things can be true. It could, it could have served you at one point and then not served you at another point. So true. So true. So true. Mm. And reading what Nikki had to say, I think that reframing that is, you know, important to the depression medicine is, is it's not medicating yourself. It's bringing yourself to a healthy place mm. that you're healthy okay. instead of Balance. now you're not self-medicating, you're taking care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. All about reframing, reframing, redefining. The words we use about ourselves and each other man, can can change the world. It's the recovery community, baby. Position to change the world. Mm. Love it. Mm. Love it. On that note, Brett, do you want to close us out? Or, you know, I know it's he's got a little baby at home that needs his I attention. Do. She is one month old today. Yay. Wow. Ding, ding, ding. Congratulations. <laughs> you. He's the best girl dad on earth. The best girl dad right there. Yeah. Oh, I love them, man. They're they're awesome. They are awesome. Well, thank you, Ryan, for coming on tonight, man. It was a pleasure yes. talking with you, and uh, really, really enjoyed it, man. It was it was great. Um, thank you, you so much. Yeah, thank you. If thank you guys you. are watching us on YouTube, be sure to like and subscribe to the channel. Turn on your notifications so you know when we go live, which is every Thursday night. Uh, Jason, who is not here tonight, he has his own podcast called The Way Out Podcast. And uh, you can find one. that wherever you get your podcast. Reverend LC hey. also has a podcast, Recovery Soul Food. Check that out. I do a solo podcast as well that has been coined Recovery Maybe. Morsels. Uh, it's Love a little it. bit of a shorter like 30 minute uh episode so check that out as well and That's we great. we release the audio from this live stream as a podcast usually it comes out about 30 minutes to an hour after the live ends so when you're on your podcast player look for all those subscribe to those get some recovery and uh, we will see you guys next thursday night remember progress not perfection have a good night everybody Bye.